Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. This is Kyle Fagala, and I'm excited to introduce David Flatt this morning. He's going to be teaching again in our apologetic series on the topic of the Kalam cosmological argument. That's a mouthful for me to even say it's something that probably a lot of you are unfamiliar with, but I promise you it's something that you'll be excited to learn more about. We're going to be talking about the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang Theory, and how we got here, and whether or not current science points to the need for God. We'll also be looking at philosophical arguments, and David is an excellent teacher when it comes to a topic like this. I again promise this is something that is totally worth your time. One of my favorite topics, actually, in all of this apologetic series. So without further ado, here's David Flatt. All right, good morning. Uh, like Kyle said, we are in this apologetic series. And for some of you, uh, this is like you know your favorite series. We're so glad you're on it. For others, uh, we're looking forward to, to being done and getting on something that's kind of orients to a different part of the brain. Uh, but that's kind of part of the beauty, I think, of being a Christian, right? Is there are different people, and God made us all different, and we're kind of oriented and wired to be drawn to different aspects of Christianity, whether it be Christian living, uh, maybe that's your thing, or whether it be um, Christian family, maybe that's your thing. Uh, maybe you're more interested in uh, social justice and outreach and what God's called us to, to, to act in a world full of suffering. And some of us are oriented towards uh, the importance of theology and apologetics. So we try to kind of be a class that recognizes uh, the diversity of, of personality God's created. So I hope that um, this series has been meaningful to you, even if maybe this uh, wouldn't exactly be like your favorite thing to talk about at 10 a.m. on a Sunday. I hope you recognize for some of us, man, there's almost nothing that seems more important than to talk about. So we'll spend a little time on it. So this morning, we're going to talk about why did the universe begin? And I want to approach it from maybe a couple different perspectives. But uh, to get us started, I want to show this video. So sometimes like when you tell a joke, you want to like hold the punchline till the end, right? But I'm not going to do that this morning. We're going to follow like the, the basic how to give a speech outline. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. That's what this, vid- this video is the whole lesson, right? So there's a four and a half minute video that's the whole lesson then I'm gonna come up and repeat (laughs) everything in this video but I'm gonna take 25 minutes to do it right and then we'll kind of summarize what we just said so this is what the whole class is going to be about uh, right here in four and a half minutes just like this podcast okay so that was the video and um, I hope that maybe some of that connected if some of it didn't we're going to try to walk through it a little bit slowly um, and see if we can't come up with something so I want to talk I want to start with this narrative about uh, what we'll call the mountain of wisdom. Okay, so that's kind of what um, I want to do over the next 35 minutes is climb this mountain, so to speak. And I, I think there's an important conversation about what is uh, Christianity and how does that relate to intellect and knowledge. So you'll think this is a little off track, but I think I'll, I'll try to make it kind of come full circle in the end. I'm going to suggest uh, that in the realm of um, truth, there's three important categories. The first is facts. facts. So facts are truth claims about the universe or the world, right? Things like trees are green, sky's blue. Of course, there's some caveats to even that, but things that are true, things that you know and can regurgitate that are truth. So you may have run into some people, maybe both in Christian circles and maybe in secular, even atheist circles, who their context of intelligence and their context of um, truth is only fact-based, right? So you may run into someone you have a theological disagreement with, and they just start 
kind of quoting verses to you, like out of context, don't really understand how the verses integrate to like a, a, a broader theological truth and system, how the Bible fits together. Or maybe you've run into like the village atheist type who's just kind of evangelically an, an atheist and kind of hates Christians, and they're just kind of quoting science to you and uh, really don't have an understanding of how those scientific facts integrate into a larger system of truth, right? So I'd say facts is just things, truth claims about the world. that We'll call that facts. A second level of truth I'm going to call knowledge. Okay? And so knowledge is an understanding of how these facts integrate into a common system. Okay? So you may think, uh, maybe like on the theological perspective, if you run into somebody who, is, who contains knowledge about like maybe Reformed theology, they're going to understand how certain texts in, in Scripture integrate into a, a system of how you could view Scripture as a whole. Whether or not you agree with that system is not really the point, but they understand how their truth, how their knowledge that they have comprehended fit together. I think knowledge may be best understood like in the professional sense, right? So um, maybe you are a mechanic, and so you spent a lot of time learning facts about how cars work, right? Mostly facts that I don't know, so it's hard for me to even give this example. But you understand how a radiator works, how part B in the radiator fits together with part C to make the radiator flush, right? So you know, you got to know what part B is how it's, and how it's supposed to work so that you know when part B is broken, we're going to connect that to part C so that the radiator will flush. And if you think of your own profession, you're, I'm sure you're going to think of countless examples of how facts that you learn through your education or life experiences fit together to create the knowledge that you need to be a teacher, a pharmacist, a dentist, a mechanic, a social worker, an insurance salesman, right? How all that fits together. You've got knowledge of your profession. There's a higher level, though, that I think we're trying to acquire in the Christian sense, and that's truth that is wisdom. And so what this is, it's certainly associated with facts. You need to know things that are true to be a wise person. If everything you believe is false, you're not wise. You even need to be a knowledgeable person. You need to know how the facts and the truths you know about the world integrate to make sense. So you have a worldview that's coherent. You're not contradicting yourself by the way you live and what you believe. But really, a wise person knows how to integrate the, their knowledge to live life well. So a life beautifully lived is a life of wisdom. This is the Christian view of, of truth and what, what the goal is when we uh, try to become the best professionals we can be. That's, this is why it matters that Christians are readers. It, this is why it matters that Christians are leaders. Because the pursuit of wisdom, a wise life, a life well lived, involves integrating all that God created in the natural world into not an intellectual worldview only, but a, a, a life that's lived out, right? This is so important. There's a whole book in the Bible about this. That's like the book of Proverbs is about how can you live wisely? How do you get wisdom? And so I want us to think about we're trying to climb this mountain of wisdom. So there will be a couple of slides here where you're like, David, why are we, like, we are so in the weeds. I hated chemistry. I hated, you know, astronomy class I took in undergrad. And that's fine. You know, we're not trying to become astronomers this morning. But I do think a Christian life of wisdom does include an understanding and appreciation that God made the natural world. And it fits together in a way that glorifies God. Right? So you don't need to go buy an astronomy textbook after today. But I do think a, a life of wisdom would understand a, kind of a few things and how we can glorify God by climbing this mountain together. Okay, so background. I think before I give this talk, 
I just in the um, kind of role of just kind of honesty and uh, just being truthful, about 80 to 90 percent of what I have said or what I will say comes almost directly from uh, the writing and the debating and the lectures of, of this Christian philosopher and apologist named William Lane Craig. And so don't sit back there and think, man, David knows so much. Uh, I, I really am just kind of, I've read a couple of his books that have really impacted me. And I'm kind of repeating uh, things that he spent a lifetime learning, right? So it's a, a, a full dis- disclosure. This could be like William Lane Craig's talk. In fact, it, it kind of is William Lane Craig's talk that I'm representing. But this one of the cool things about the internet age is you can connect with Christians in a way you never would have even heard of or met, you know, William Lane Craig, but he's been like one of the most influential people in my life because he's framed the way I think about some really important issues, especially issues that come up um, for somebody that, that loves science and is trying to integrate that into a, a Christian worldview. So it's been it's just hard to overstate how uh, influential he's been on me. He's also, I mean, it's kind of cool to talk about like somebody that's brilliant. So he's got he's got two PhDs, both from like internationally elite universities. He's got a PhD in philosophy and a PhD in theology. So he's like a true expert in kind of both fields, and I just really respect him a lot. So he's written two books that I think are relevant to kind of talk about. Kyle uh, did this earlier. So this book, On Guard, if you're a parent in 2017, um, I think you ought to read this book. I mean, it you know, I don't want to be too, too strong about it. Maybe you shouldn't, but I think this can be helpful as we try uh, to disciple our children and our children are growing up in a modern scientific age. So how does the modern scientific age complement and interact with Christianity? And where are areas where maybe a modern scientific view is incorrect and we need to kind of challenge and push back? I think this is, be a, is a really helpful resource. If you really love kind of history and theology and that kind of background of, of a Christian worldview, this book is excellent. He kind of walks through, starting at the beginning, like the church fathers and how they viewed some of these questions and how that relates to the most modern and, and most new things we know about the natural world. So two books I'd recommend to you, especially this one. Um, I think this is an important resource for parents or even just if you want to be a leader in the workplace, you need to know something about science. It's not enough to just say, well, that's not how I've always thought about it. Well, I think there's some things we can think a little deeper. So. Read these two books. I think they'll be helpful to you. Also, this the enterprise of apologetics is certainly a Christian thing. Every once in a while, you'll run into this like, I don't want to have to think about faith, or we shouldn't have to explain that faith is reasonable. I just I'm spiritual, right? But being a Christian is so much more than just being spiritual, right? Christian is actually a very like humanistic religion in like the the positive sense, right? Uh, there's a lot of talk in like. Christian circles about like God cares about your body and like in the new heaven and new earth we're going to have we're not going to be in a like disembodied spirit state we're going to live in resurrected bodies God cares about you as a human right and so we can't just spiritualize our Christianity and ignore kind of our our humanness Christianity is a, a human religion and so as part of that we want to integrate not just spiritual truths but truths about the world that God created and that's exactly what Peter's saying here he's saying always be prepared to give a defense this word is apologia to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, do this with gentleness and respect. So we want to be able to give reasons for what it is we believe. So, did the universe begin to exist? That's the question we want to ask this morning. So, this is a question that's been debated, at least in Western uh, civilization, for like 3,000 years. Almost every great mind um, that has written or thought about the big ideas of the world has commented on it. Kind of the first recordings, maybe not the first, the most important um, writings that kind of influenced um, academic thought are from 
uh, Socrates and Aristotle, a little bit from Plato, their view, the, the Greek pagan view, was that the universe did not begin to exist. The universe was eternal. This is really the view of every kind of academic, intellectual thinker for the first, or I guess for 2,000 years, was the universe did not begin to exist. The universe has always been here because it would have, have to have been always here. So if you read like um, you know, any of like Aristotle or uh, Socrates or the Greek philosophers, that's, that's the position they'll take. Of course, this isn't the position of Jewish thought. So Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So really, from the year about 500 to the year about 1950, you have this interaction between uh, the faiths of our intellectuals from the Jewish tradition. So these would be Jews, Christians, and importantly Muslims. Muslims have played an important role in this conversation, viewing the universe as created. It began to exist. And most intellectuals who would say the universe did not begin to exist. And you can kind of imagine the punchline, right, that we're getting to. Because if the universe began to exist, then there's huge metaphysical, theological, even spiritual questions that kind of have to come out of that. If the universe began to exist, there's some other questions that have to be asked that are really uncomfortable to a uh, fully materialistic worldview. Can you guys, you guys follow that? I think that's true. If, if the universe began to exist, then you got to ask questions about why did it begin to exist? Why did it begin to exist at a certain point in time? What was different about that moment than the moment before, right? Um, so the, the common view of most intellectuals until about 1950 or a little before then was the universe was eternal. An important... Um, okay, so this, this kind of controversy kind of reached its peak in Kant, who's maybe... The most, or one of the two or three most important Western philosophers who kind of have shaped the way, even if you've never heard his name, have shaped the way you think. Not necessarily all for good. I, I wouldn't say that I'm like a, a fan of Kant, but he said a lot of things that really influenced people who have influenced people who have influenced people who influenced all of us. And he, he, his conclusion was, man, both sides really have a good point. I guess we just can't know, right? So kind of in, in the... Um, in the Renaissance and kind of the birth of modern society, this was kind of the tenor, the, the tone is like, we just don't know. There's a, a Muslim thinker named Al-Ghazali who lived in Persia, which would be modern day Iran, who was really an important thinker on this question. So we've talked in here before, of course, we have some differences, some important differences with uh, our Muslim friends about spiritual and religious questions, right? Um, and we've talked about that, but one of the things we do agree on is we view the universe was created by one God at a certain point in the finite past. And so uh, I think this is one area, kind of uniquely, you talk about questions like this, you can find some similarity and some commonality with people who we tend to, and even the world tells us to, we shouldn't have anything in common with. So I've had conversations with some of my friends that are Muslims about this, and it's really gone well. I think it's been a, a helpful thing to kind of create uh, relationships. I think that's helpful. And maybe one of the most important thinkers on this question was a Muslim theologian. So that's kind of a neat place to start off on. So Al-Ghazali is this 12th century Muslim theologian, and he wrote this book called uh, Against the Philosophers. So he's writing a book. Um, pushing back against kind of the Greek pagan thinkers like Aristotle and Socrates and the people who thought the universe was eternal. I'm not running down those guys. Obviously, Socrates and Aristotle are way smarter than me. I think they have. I think our culture would be better if we read more of them. But we obviously disagree on this point, and Al Ghazali disagreed with him. So he has this line in his book against the philosophers. He says, "Every being which begins has a cause for its beginning, 
Now the world is a being which begins, therefore it possesses a cause for its beginning. Okay, so like all good theologians, that's like this huge run-on sentence. You know, it's got like a couple semicolons, a comma. Uh, Paul does the same thing, right? Like if you read Romans, there's a couple sentences that are like six verses. You're like, dude, can you use a period here? So Al-Ghazali's doing the same thing. We can kind of break it down for uh, my, you know, postmodern 2017 brain into three sentences here. So the first sentence, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Okay? The second sentence, the universe begins to exist, or the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Briefly, let's just think about um, logical reasoning and how that fits together. So what you want to do when you frame an argument like this is you want to lay out certain premises that you think are true. That's what these first two sentences are. I think this is true. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. I also think this is true. The universe begins to exist. And then you have a conclusion that follows. So if one and two are true, then three has to be true by deductive reasoning. That follows. So that, that's why logic and deductive reasoning can play into your Christian faith. Right? So we're not anti-intellectual. We want to be intellectual, thoughtful people. We want to love God with our mind. And that's how an argument like this lays out. So then what we want to do is say, are there good reasons to believe that premise one and premise two are true? Because if I believe they're true and they're more likely true than false, and I can show that with evidence. So if it's more likely, if it's more likely that one is true than false, and it's more likely that two is true than false, then, then the conclusion follows. Okay? So that's, that's all we want to do the rest of the class is just kind of walk through our one and two true. So one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. So what I'd say here is that everyone believes this, and no one doesn't believe it. Right? So Craig's got this kind of... Um, I don't know, sidebar he gives when he gives a speech that he thought when he originally wrote kind of the first book, this was his thesis for one of his PhDs. So, of course, I haven't read it. Read, I read the like pared down thoughts, but he wrote like a thousand page thesis. And his thought was no one would attack the first premise of the argument at all. So of, of the thousand pages, he spent, you know, 750 pages on the second premise. Uh, because the first premise just seems so evidently true. Because if you're going to say that things can pop into existence out of nothing, we've stopped doing science, right? We, we're, now we're talking, we're not even, as he says, we're not even talking about magic, right? If things can pop into existence uncaused out of nothing, then why is everything not popping into existence uncaused out of nothing? It can't have anything to do with the property of nothing, right? Because nothing has no properties, right? The, the, if, if you're resorting to wanting to challenge this premise, I think there's a, a huge likelihood that we've stopped doing intellectually honest um, searching for truth. We've started, th we've started with the idea that I disagree with the conclusion, and I agree that the evidence for point two is pretty strong, so I need to refute point one. So now I'm going to talk about how I think things can pop into existence out of nothing. There's one point that ought to be made that comes up kind of in like... Um, maybe like lay documentary. So if you're watching like the Discovery Channel or National Geographic or something, they're talking about the beginning of the universe. You'll hear some conversation about a like vacuum fluctuations, right? So in a vacuum fluctuation, sometimes matter will, be, will apparently begin to exist, pop out of the vacuum. The important, the important point is um, a vacuum is not nothing, 
right? So, so that's, that's the, uh, I wouldn't say it's a trick. I don't think they're necessarily trying to be dishonest. But that's where you can kind of miss the theological consequences of saying something can pop into existence out of nothing. A vacuum is not nothing. It has all kinds of properties. It has an energy force. It has a gravitational constants. So yes, matter can uh, be produced from energy. We know that. Um, but but uh, matter can't be produced from nothing. So what, a good definition for nothing is not anything. Right, that's what the word means. Nothing does not mean a gravitational vacuum. Nothing means not anything. So out of nothing, nothing comes, nothing ever will. Right, that's a song from The Sound of Music. Out of nothing, nothing comes, nothing ever will. And that's true. We can believe that. And uh, I think that's helpful because that premise leads us uh, to maybe some thoughts from some other uh, atheist philosophers. So here's Quentin Smith. He's a prominent atheist philosopher. He's collaborated with Craig on a couple of books they've written together. Um, but he says the universe came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. So he said this in a, in a debate with Craig, and Craig had a, a pretty cool quip back. He says, that sounds like the Gettysburg Address of atheism, right? So it's like the universe came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. The point is, if you're going to deny the first premise, you've kind of got to go all in, and you've got to say things like, th- like this is crazy. Right? If you try to say this, like, in, like if you're in an organic chemistry class, you're talking about like synthesizing compounds, and you like said this to your organic chemistry professor, he'd be like, I mean, get out of my class. Like that's, that's not how the natural world works. Things don't pop into existence out of nothing. And so I don't think we create a special situation where we say, I, think, I don't think anything can pop into existence out of nothing, except for universes. Universes can. So let's say, well, what's so special about universes? Like, why are you being biased and giving privilege to a universe that it can pop into existence out of nothing, but a, a bicycle can't? Right? So a universe can pop into existence out of nothing, but a bicycle can't, or a, a dog can't, or a horse can't. No one here, again, this is one of Craig's jokes, but no one here is worried that at home, right now while you're in class, an animal is going to pop into existence out of nothing in your bedroom and is, uh, is you know, causing havoc in your house. Why aren't you worried about that? Because you know it doesn't happen. So the first premise is always verified. It's never falsified. There has never been an occurrence in the history of modern scientific theory where something came into existence uncaused out of nothing. And suggesting that that happens, I think, reveals something about intellectually what's going on in a conversation. Okay, so that's the first premise. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Oh, so I do want to... There is another, like an associated thing with this. So if you watch like a, a debate online or if you've ever been to a, de- a debate about does God exist, every single time, every single time, one of these debates at a university, a um, kind of a, a self-confident college student will walk to the microphone at the question and answer time and ask the same question. And they'll say it as if they are the first person to ever have this thought and that this is like this great uh, I'm going to stump you question. And it, it, I mean, it happens every single time. The question is always, well, what created God? If everything begins to exist has a cause, what is the cause of God? Or they say, if everything that exists has a cause, what is the cause of God? And we act like this is like this magnificent intellectual giant that's asked this question. Um, so there's, there's obviously two problems with the question. First is that's not the premise. The premise isn't that everything that exists has a cause right? It's everything that begins to exist has a cause. So when um, pagan philosophers argued that the universe existed eternally, no one said, well, what created the universe? It's a meaningless question. If something never begins to exist, if something is self-contained and necessarily exists, of course it doesn't have a cause. So an eternal universe doesn't have a a cause because it eternally existed. And of course, as Christians, we believe that God is eternal and uncaused. 
right? So this idea of what, if everything that exists has a cause, what caused God is, is literally a meaningless question. He's uncaused and he's, he's eternal in the same way that an eternal universe would be uncaused. So this isn't special pleading by the Christian. This is the same thing that a pagan philosopher would say about the universe. In fact, as we'll talk about in a second, there can't be an endless regress of causes. There has to be a first uncaused cause. Which leads us to premise two, which is the universe began to exist. So we're probably going to run out of time, but I'm going to try to suggest one philosophical and two scientific arguments that have really made this, I don't know if it's universally accepted, but it's very rare that there's a scientist that would disagree with this premise. Most universities, you know, prominent, popular universities uh, would have no one on their staff that doesn't believe the universe began to exist. So philosophical arguments. This is a little hard to grapple with, especially to like, talk about in a short period of time, but I'm going to try. And the, the thought here is that an actually infinite number of things cannot exist. So just a th- brief thought experiment. Imagine that you had as much time as you needed and asked you to count to infinity. Would you ever be done? No, because you can't count to infinity. There, there is, infinity is a useful mathematic tool. If you took calculus in undergrad, especially Calc 2, you talked about infinity and you used it to, to do equations and to even make things work and like build things in the real world. But there's no such thing as an actual infinity. It's only a potential number. So you can never count to infinity. Infinity is just an idea, right? But if the universe is eternal, there would be an infinite number of seconds in our past. So if you were to, to go back to the beginning and keep counting backwards, the, the track would never end. So you would have an actual number of infinite seconds, which is impossible, right? So this shows sometimes we have this kind of like chronological snobbery. We think like everyone that lived before, you know, everyone that was born before 1940 is a moron, right? And we finally figured out the way the world works. This, like Al-Ghazari, Al-Ghazari it, born like 12th century Persia, like he's the guy that thought of this. It's brilliant, like it's unbelievable, but it's absolutely right. An infinite number of past events could not have occurred because an actual number of infinity is not possible. So maybe that connected with you, maybe that didn't. Let's talk about science, which I think we can kind of grab hold of a little bit better in our culture. But I think it's neat to talk about how infinity can't exist. If you want to uh, Google this idea, Hilbert's Hotel, maybe watch a couple of videos about it. It's it's kind of a fun thought experiment. What if you had a hotel with an infinite number of rooms in it? What would that be like? And uh, kind of, we don't have time to talk about it, but you can get some laughs thinking about if you had a hotel with an infinite number of guests and guests were checking out and checking in and how many rooms would you actually have? Okay, so scientific arguments. I'm going to try to give two scientific arguments for why um, maybe the scientific consensus has changed in the last century. Uh, instead of lo- thinking the universe is eternal, now almost everyone thinks that the universe began to exist. So the first argument is the expansion of the universe. Okay, so we'll, we'll, say, um, we'll say philosophical arguments. So I'm going to say this is the absurdity of the infinity. And then scientific arguments. Let's say the expansion of the universe. So 
y'all hang with me because some of this may be uncomfortable for a few of us as we first start talking about it, but just, just hang with me until the end. The expansion of the universe, sometimes what's colloquially called the Big Bang. Okay, so we've been trained in our culture to think of the Big Bang as a as a unchristian idea. Well, atheists believe in the Big Bang. We believe in Genesis one one. Right? That's kind of at least in some context how our culture reads things. But you guys hang with me, and I'll explain to you why um, maybe intellectuals on both sides see it exactly the opposite. Okay. So the Big Bang. So historically, men have assumed the universe was eternal and uncaused. Then in 1917. Huge change happened. So you had Al-Ghazari, you know, maybe some philo- philosophers who had the philosophical arguments that, they, that caused them to believe the universe was, was caused and not eternal. But most people believe the universe was eternal until um, these, these events. So in 1917, Albert Einstein develops his theory of relativity. His theory of relativity equals mc squared. You guys may have like heard or, stu- or studied some of those things. Well, his theory of relativity, when he first did his equations, predicted a beginning of the universe. It predicted a universe that came into existence out of nothing. So Einstein, being a smart guy, recognized the implications of that. Well, if the universe came into existence out of nothing, then there's some other questions we need to ask about what that means. So he did what's really a, an odd thing for somebody like Einstein. He was so perplexed that he solved his equations by creating a fudged constant. So if you guys remember from like algebra or calculus, there's all these constants in nature. The most, most famous would be like pi. So you can calculate all these things about a circle if you understand the, the relationship of a circle to pi. So Einstein created a constant in his equation that he thought must be there because I know the universe didn't begin to exist. And my equations say the universe came into existence. So he, he fudged a new constant, just created it up, solved for what the number would have to be, and said this must be there. So that's 1917. Then in the 1920s, two thinkers, this is um, Friedman and Lemaitre. So these two guys are smart guys too. They were going through Einstein's equations. It shows how brilliant Einstein is. It took three years for, for people to review his work and recognize, hey, what, what, is it, what did you do here? So they recognize, they can't make Einstein's equations work all the way down the end. So they kind of collaborate with him, talk, work out their own, uh, their own math, and they recognize this constant shouldn't be there. The universe began to exist. So that's 1920. That's when we first kind of have really highly uh, acclaimed intellectuals saying out loud, you know, the universe began to exist. The best things that we can explain about energy and flow and constant say the universe began to exist. And then Edwin Hubble, this happened in 1929, he discovered that light from distant stars was redder than light from stars closer to us. So why is that true? You guys remember Roy G. Biv? So these, this is the This is the wavelength of light, right? So the wavelength of red, the color red, is long is larger than the wavelength of the color violet, and it you know progressively decreases in size. So things that are moving away from you appear a little more red than things that are moving towards you, which appear a little more blue. So we can't see this that much in our world because things aren't moving at that far of a distance and that great of speed. But if you, like microscopically, if you're ever in the lab looking at really fast, like electrons, stuff like that, um, you can, you can kind of see this. You'll see like a red tint. And so Hubble's looking at these stars and recognize this, the stars that are furthest away from us, which are moving the fastest away from us, have, are more red than the stars that are 
closer to us. So what does that mean? That this redshift means that things are expanding away from us, right? So it doesn't take a brilliant person to recognize if things are expanding. Well, if you just run that, if you run that back in history, then there has to be an origin that they came from. If things are consistently moving away from each other, then they obviously originate at the same spot. So this was um, another discovery, the redshift, which really kind of, um, kind of moved the narrative. So this would be um, kind of the standard Big Bang model, so to speak. Let me just give a caveat here. Um, there certainly is a Christian view of the universe, that the universe is much younger than what modern science would predict. And if, if you believe that, I just want to say that that's okay. And I think that's, that's very possible. In fact, there's a, a few days a week, so to speak, that, that I kind of believe that. Like, maybe we get to heaven and God's like, dude, I said day. Like, why are you, like, mixing all this up, up into that? But I think it's at least possible that, um, you know, when you translate day in ancient Hebrew, that, that translation is kind of ambiguous. Sometimes day means a long period of time. Sometimes day means a literal 24-hour day. You also look at things like the first few days, the sun didn't even exist yet. So how's the earth going around the sun to calculate a 24-hour period? I, I, think the most, I think the best reading of Genesis 1 is that day doesn't mean 24-hour period. But maybe it does. And my, my purpose this morning is not to talk you into old or young uh, earth creationism, right? My point is to say, even if you take the scientific consensus of how the universe probably began to exist, that suge suggests that the universe began to exist in a flash of heat and light sometime in the, in the past, which is exactly what Christians and Jews and Muslims have always believed about the universe. So this would be kind of how the standard model uh, interacts. We've got some dates and times here, which are just almost you know, hard to fathom that period of years. Um, but the point isn't how long this took, it's that it began in the past and the universe is not eternal. Okay. Um, so this is kind of what we just drew on the board here. It's time and space began to exist and is moving outward. Um, so this is the reason we would believe that the standard Big Bang model is correct. And we probably don't have time to go through all this. But I just kind of want to maybe appeal to authority and encourage you to go read about this. But there's too much helium in the universe for the universe to have existed forever. Helium is a light element. It would have disintegrated. Then um, this thing called cosmic background wave radiation. If there was not some incredible explosion and creation of matter and energy sometime in the past, we shouldn't have as much background ra wave radiation as we do. Then um, I just maybe should mention, of course, since this model suggests, I mean, almost is like hinting at theological truth, uh, there's a lot of people who are uninterested in accepting the standard Big Bang model. So the, the, 20th, the 20th and 21st century has been a series of people revealing new th ways that the universe may have began to, begun to exist. And we shouldn't be scared of that. In fact, we should welcome challenges and thoughts to how the universe might begin to exist for a couple reasons. One, all truth is God's truth. So we want to learn about the world God created. And if somebody's got a new idea, then we want to learn about it because we want to learn how God created our universe. The second reason is, I think it is kind of a backhanded compliment to the power of the standard model, that everyone's trying to challenge it and change a new model, and we're, a, you know, we're almost 100 years in, and the scientific consensus is, man, I don't know if I'm ready to believe in God, but the universe began to exist. And so if you've got really sober-minded scientists, many of whom are antagonistic to Christianity and Judaism and religion in general, saying the universe began to exist, I think that's, that's a really powerful idea. So here's the quote from the video we talked about. This is Alexander Vilenkin, who's 
one of the most famous uh, cosmologists in the world, uh, certainly no friend of Christianity, uh, but I think an honest man. He said, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With a proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. So what he's saying there is, you know, pagan philosophers of the past, the way that we viewed the world till about 1920 or 1930 when these new discoveries kind of changed everything, we can't do that anymore. We can no longer hide behind, we don't have to think about a beginning because the universe has always been here. No, we have to think about what caused the universe. He said, there is no escape. <laughs> they have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. So you're, to a scientific-minded person, your worldview needs to include an explanation for how the universe began to exist. And then um, we'll skip the thermodynamics. Um, uh, there's some alternative models that have not gained scientific acceptance, and um, maybe some other time we can talk about why these models have failed new and modern tests. So they reveal oscillating universes, or what they call bubble universes, or even baby universes, and then through more experimentation, more testing, these have fallen out of favor, and the, the standard model remains. So the point is, if we really believe this is true, and I think we have good reasons, in two, maybe not in 1950, maybe not 1940, maybe not even 1960, but in 2017, too, is true. And if it's not true, there's something radically wrong about the whole scientific enterprise, the whole way our equations work, the whole, all the theories that we think are true about science. But if you believe in science, and you believe in the modern view of how science integrates itself, two is true. The universe began to exist. And so if that kind of thing is true, then three is true. Therefore, the universe has as a cause, which of course is a truth claim that sits very comfortably among an institution or a group of people who believe Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's, that sounds very similar to premise three. Okay, so this is how the video ended, characteristics of the creator. You can imagine that the kind of uh, being that could create a universe would have to be immaterial because it created all matter. It have to be spaceless because it created space. It have to be timeless because it created time. It have to be unimaginably powerful because it daggum created a whole universe, right? So you start, you start start talking about characteristics of what the cause would have to be. It sounds a lot like the God of the Bible, right? So I think we're on solid grounds, and we're certainly not anti-scientific to believe that the cause of the universe was something very similar to what most Christians mean by the word God. So God is the creator of the universe, the uncaused first cause. Craig ends his, uh, the chapter in the book by saying, The Kalam cosmological argument thus gives us powerful grounds for believing in the existence of a beginningless, uncaused, timeless, spaceless, changeless, immaterial, enormously powerful creator, capital C even, of the universe. So I want to finish with a thought about this mountain of wisdom that we're climbing. So why do we work so hard as Christians to think about uh, hard questions, even scientific questions, even questions about things that they say, oh, you're not supposed to talk about that in church. Just come be spiritual. Why is it worth the climb? Well, I think the, the view from the top is something worth attaining. And I think it's worth trying to be a person of wisdom. I also think that there's some surprising conclusions at the top of the mountain that are things that we wouldn't expect. So here's Robert Jastrow, NASA physicist, spent his life as an atheist, is now kind of reorienting maybe his worldview after spending his life as an atheist astronomer. He concludes his book on, um, he wrote a book on science, religion, and, and life or something like that. So he concludes his book with this sentence. For the scientist, 
who has lived his who has lived by faith I'm sorry, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock on this mountain, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. So I think that's kind of where we are with modern science. We spent in Western civilization 1,500 years trying to solve a lot of questions about how did the universe come into being and how could it have been here forever. And the conclusion that we've come to, at least in 2017, is the same answer that Genesis 1-1 gave us literally thousands of years ago. That's a cool thing to stand on and a cool thing to, to put confidence in in times or seasons of your life where your faith may seem a little less stable. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, we thank you so much uh, for all that you've given us, and you are so good, and you are so uh, powerful, and we thank you for the ways that you've created the universe, and we thank you that we can have confidence in your creation and in the goodness that your creation promises us uh, through relationship with you. God, we're so thankful for Christian thinkers who have dedicated their lives to discovering truths about the world and allow us to glorify and worship you more. Thank you, thankful this morning for William Lane Craig, who's influenced so many Christians thinking around questions uh, like this. God, I thank you for this group of people, uh, their dedication to not just taking the shortcut up the mountain, but to living a life of earned wisdom underneath your grace. God, we thank you so much uh, for the promise of the future, and God, we're hopeful for an eternity with you. It's in that, in that promise and on that hope that we praise your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, I want to thank David for doing a wonderful job with that. The video, we edited it out because it was going to be five minutes of barely being able to hear a video. But if you want to go find that, uh, we'll put that on our uh, Facebook group for the Holland Bridge Builders. And you can go watch that or you can Google it. It's a William Lane Craig video about the Kalam cosmological argument with the question of, did the universe begin to exist? And you can find that. It's about a five-minute video. Uh, these are deep questions. These are important questions. Hopefully this has meant something to you. Hopefully, you know, maybe you believe that God created the universe, but now you're saying, well, I think I just believe it because I was told that or because I read in the Bible. And those aren't necessarily bad reasons, but like David was talking about, kind of scaling the mountain yourself, rechecking the foundations perhaps that have been built by others for you. Good foundations, but there are things that you need to check on yourself so that you truly do believe it, especially in times of kind of a faith crisis. We'll be doing more of this next week uh, with our apologetics series. We'll be looking at the teleological argument. Again, another thing that's like, what does that mean? Well, it is a, an argument for God based on design. And so we see design in both our universe. It's very tightly designed. It's held together by very tight constants and things that we'll talk about next week. And also there's certainly design in humans and animals and plants and things that perhaps create, uh, that point rather to a creator or a designer. Um, now, sometimes when you hear, you know, argument for design, it's sort of a simplified thing and, and something that's maybe used uh, in an almost anti-intellectual sense. This is not going to be that. This is going to be more broad painting, let's say, um, but I think it's a sort of argument that would hold up in really any area. I hope you're here for that. Uh, as David said in the beginning of his lesson, this is stuff that doesn't appeal to everyone, but for those of you that, that it does, uh, hopefully it's been very helpful and eye-opening. I hope that you're having a wonderful week. We've got another week starting right now. We'll be back together next Sunday at 10 a.m. at Highland Church of Christ. If you're in the area in Memphis, please come see us 10 a.m., the Highland Bridge Builders class. We'd love to meet you. And uh, with that, we'll see you next week. Thanks.